many, much of our frustrations, much of our flounderings and failures in life come about because from the start uh, we began with some poor assumptions, some errant expectations about things, and that is certainly exemplified in the history of our poor relations with Native Americans. So a lot of you know that we were just on a, a trip over the last week, two weeks ago, uh, to the Cherokee Reservation. So I'm going to be tapping into some of that experience, some reflections as we are moving through this, this uh, time together here this morning. Uh, presently speaking, I just should, should say this to you, uh, when it comes to our expectations and how we can go awry when it comes to our relations with Native Americans, um, when you're visiting one of these reservations in North America, you need to understand that you're, you should not go expecting buckskin and, or even brown skin or feathers and teepees. That is just not necessarily the case in terms of what you're going to experience and who you're going to meet. Our expectations need to be adjusted, examined, critiqued. That has been the case from the start when Europeans came over to North America. I'll give you just one example. We deemed it as, if we're going to say Europeans, you're of people of European descent, we, we just assumed that the way you engage with someone, the way that you would show deference and respect and express trust with another person was eye contact. You look a man or a woman in the eye, right? We still talk about that today. That's not the case with Native Americans. It's just the opposite. That's deemed to be presumptuous and a proud thing, invasive, moving into their, another person's space that when you're not invited to do that. Now, you can see if you've got two groups of people who just simply with eye contact and interpersonal communication, and this group looks at it this way, and this group looks at it this way, can you see how we're going to have some trouble moving forward together? Just from the very beginning of relationship and trying to get to know one another. And that certainly had a little bit to do with a, a long history of, of sad story. Point being, we need to examine our assumptions to allow our expectations to, to be challenged. And that is no less the case when it comes to our understanding and our engaging with the ways of Jesus and what it means to follow him. All the more so, our expectations need to be challenged and our assumptions need to be examined. If you've got a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Matthew 17. Matthew chapter 17 uh, is where we are in our extended long study here in the Gospel of Matthew. It's the first of the four Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first book of the New Testament. Uh, it is, it's worth noting here uh, the, the context. I don't, I'm not trying to be like snarky here when I say verses 14 through 23, which we're reading come after verses 1 through 13. That sounds like really ridiculous, but there's a point in saying that because verses 1 through 13 are the, is the, one of the accounts that we have of Jesus' transfiguration upon likely Mount Hermon there to the north of the Galilee region. Now, why is that a big deal? Because what happens there, we were looking at that a few weeks ago, what happened there was Jesus is revealed for who he is before Peter, James, and John and miraculously enough, there is Moses and Elijah somehow there up with them as well. We, th those three disciples get a glimpse of Jesus' pre-incarnate glory, if you can imagine that, or also who John sees in, in, in the book of Revelation, of his exalted glory. That's who Peter, James, and John are seeing there 
on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus revealed in all of his glory. That's verses 1 through 13. On the mountain. Now we come down to the valley. And the juxtaposition, the study of contrast is off the charts. In terms of what you see there and what you see Vital we recognize that as we're looking at this text. So verses 14 through 23, Matthew chapter 17, and no, my time at Cherokee did not fix my eyesight. So here we go. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and said, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. and Nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you take your perfect law and revive our souls? Would you take your sure testimony and make wise the simple? Would you take your right precepts and bring joy to our hearts, your pure commands, and enlighten our eyes? We need all of that and more, and, and more than we know. Our ordinary ways of thinking, our ordinary ways of seeing and approaching life, of, of seeing our circumstances, of even seeing ourselves, is warped. Sometimes just outright wrong. And we are in need of help. As has been said already this morning, we are members of one kingdom living in the midst of another. And there's a clash of the ways of those two kingdoms and the ways of the two kings. We would serve you. We would follow you. But that has to mean something different than business as usual. And surely the disciples were coming to grapple with that just a bit uh, there that day at the foot of the Transfiguration Mountain. Oh, would you help us to grapple with it as well? We pray in your name. Amen. Well, volcanoes have been in the news a bit here as of late. Uh, Kilauea there in Hawaii has led to the loss of hundreds of homes. Uh, Volcan de Fuego there in Guatemala has led to the loss of hundreds of lives. And scores missing. And 
whole villages, whole towns wiped off the map. You, you may know, if you think back to your earth science classes, do we still do earth science today? I don't even know. Okay. So thinking back to your earth science classes, and uh, you may remember something about what a volcano is, and just from a scientific standpoint, it's basically a rupture in the crust of the earth, the surface of the earth. And it's, it's where you have, because of that rupture, you have this, this lava and these gases and this ash escaping, being extruded out, out, out because you've got this magma layer down beneath. And they're usually found at places where the tectonic plates, remember this, earth science, come on. Stay with me. Uh, no? Okay. The tectonic plates are, 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 coming, are coming together, and they're shifting. In some cases, they're being pushed together or pulled apart, and that's creating, can I just put it this way, some disruption, some difficulty up there on the surface where we live that therein needs to be monitored, Right? The reason I'm bringing that up is because this volcanic activity and the way the tectonic plates are shifting down beneath and, and all of that that's coming about because of that is something of a metaphor for a paradigm shift, a paradigm shift where how we see, how we think, how we live is being, and, and it's deeply held understanding and beliefs, right, down deep at the tectonic plate level, if you will, is being, for whatever reason, shifted around. And things are being forced to move, which then causes up here all kinds of difficulty and disruption. And we have to be asking ourselves some questions in this new reality. How am I doing? How am I doing? Now you're probably wondering, well, what in the world does that have to do with the text? Jesus is speaking here in some ways to us, some uh, in some counterintuitive ways, ways that just cut right up against the grain of how we're accustomed to to seeing and thinking and living, that they're in demands that we check and we ask and we examine, re-examine our assumptions and our expectations and ask the question, how am I doing with all of this? He clearly intends, for his followers, he clearly intends a paradigm shift. We need to be continually taking heed to what he's saying. He clearly intends a paradigm shift for us if we're a follower of his. We clearly then continually need to be taking heed to what he is saying, especially when we consider, I mean, a paradigm shift by definition is difficult is difficult to navigate and move through. How does this come out? There are at least three ways, there in your outline, three ways that this comes out. Three, 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 I'll call it three marks of a disciple, three marks of what it means to follow Jesus, three signs of this paradigm shift, this upsetting, this disrupting, this, these difficulties that he's causing, put that in quotation marks, in, in our lives. And, and the first is that he's calling us to be ever descending, and the second idea is that he, we are to be ever depending, and then thirdly, we are called to be ever dying. And you see that here, these marks of what it means to follow Jesus, descending, depending, dying, ever, with each one of those.
works without any exception. Let's look at these in turn. Ever descending. What is that about? Well, let's start again. Verses 14 through 18. And when they came up to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. And again, let me just stress that this comes right on the heels of the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus is seen there in the midst of this cloud of glory, and he has now descended into this crowd of confusion. But he comes down, he descends nonetheless. He doesn't pull back, he presses in. He faces the difficulties, he moves right into the difficulties. And those of you who are familiar with your Old Testament, you may recognize something of an echo here of Moses' experience. As he came down from Mount Sinai after the Lord had given him the, the commandments, the law, Moses comes down from Mount Sinai, and what does he find? The apostasy of Israel greeting him, if you will. It's something like that when Jesus, another mountain, he comes down. And what is he faced with? Doubt and struggle and unbelief, skepticism, struggle, confusion, all of this. He's greeted with a possessed child, a pain father, and at best, confused, conflicted disciples and watching crowds trying to figure out what in the world is going on here. And he moves into all that. He faces these difficulties. He descends, you see, down into that. This is his, if you will, an ongoing incarnation, almost you could say. He moves into that. He faces these difficulties. But it's not just that. He faces the discouragements of all this. What, what does all that mean? what he's facing. As the one who is the agent of creation, he is facing the trashing of his creation, what he's witnessing there in front of him. Be beginning with the, the trespass and vandalization of Satan. Right there on full display, Jesus is the agent of creation being forced to reckon with this. But as though that's not enough, not, not, enough. The, not just the trashing of his creation, but the failure of his disciples. Now remember, on the mountain of transfiguration, he takes three of them, Peter, James, and John up there, meaning he's left the other nine down there on their own. That said, the understanding was, if you're a disciple of a teacher or a rabbi at the time, the understanding was mature disciples... Note the adjective I just put there. Mature disciples are supposed to be able to handle things, even in the absence of their master. They didn't. They couldn't. It was beyond them. And so Jesus has this mess on his hands as he's greeted, if you will, coming to see how they're faring. You can see, you hear something of his dismay and his discouragement there in verse 17. And this may shock you because this doesn't sound very Jesus-like. <laughs> but there it is in Matthew's gospel. These words that Jesus says that we need to reckon with, that we need to hear 
and, and really consider what it, oh, let me just read it. Verse 17, oh, faithless and twisted generation. And he's really speaking to all of the people, but the, but the disciples as the presenting party of all the people, okay? And Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. This is, this is exasperation. This is Jesus' feeling and emotion in a raw form on full display. Now, I don't have, we don't have enough time to go too far into this right now. That's a whole other sermon. But I, this much needs to be said. Just put a bookmark at this point, and I'll come back to the, the main trail. A lot of us are really nervous about emotions and very uncomfortable about feelings. Here's Jesus voicing his. Caveat, he is not governed by his emotions. He is not enslaved to his feelings. He's not just venting for, you know, because it's somehow going to be of some therapeutic value to just vomit what he feels and everybody around him. He's not bound or enslaved to his feelings, but please note he is not afraid of them either. And there are times in which they need to be voiced, times in which they need to be said, brought to the, what's going on down deep, brought up to the surface. I know it makes a lot of us nervous. Talk to Jesus about it. That's what we see here in verse 17. It's a challenge. I understand that. And perhaps that's a, maybe we could say point two slash four or something like that as far as in the course of this message. But it's certainly well worth noting. But the main thing being that Jesus, a mark, a mark of what it means to follow him is that we are to be ever descending. Ever descending, willing to face, coming down, if you will, coming down the mountain into the valley, willing to face the difficulties, willing to face the discouragements. That's part of what it means to follow him. If we're going to walk down the trail behind and with him as his followers, it means ever descending. Some of you may recognize the, uh, the Southwest Airlines uh, ad campaign that's been going on for some number of years. You've got this poor, besotten individual who's just embarrassed and mortified by something that they've done, and they just want to get out of town. And so some of the examples, there's a gazillion of them out there. You can see them on, on YouTube. Uh, one of them would be an intern who inadvertently exposes the identity of a secret agent. Uh, another would be a military general who inadvertently, one, gives, well, no, he's, he has to tell for some reason some techno person what his secret network password is, but then it's something like, you know, pink bunny slippers or some, something like that. Or it's a businessman who's traveling, and he inadvertently gets into a, a bank heist getaway car thinking that that's his prearranged ride. And all of these, every one of these, dozens and dozens of these ads that, that Southwest Airlines has done ends with what tagline? You remember? Want to get away? There were moments, and Matthew 17 shows us, Jesus wanted to get away. It's true. Now, I need to make a clarifier here. 
in saying that we are to be ever descending, willing to face the difficulties, because that's the main point here, willing to face the difficulties and face the discouragements. There are times when we are called on to take a break, to rest, a strategic withdrawal, a vacation, my goodness, the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, the Shabbat, the ceasing, is built into the very fabric of creation. That said, the one who is our rest calls us to go down the mountain, into the valley, and be willing to face the difficulties and the discouragements. He calls us to do that. We're called to be ever descending, not backing away, willing to move into the fray, the, the carnage, the difficulty, the pain in our own hearts and in the hearts of others. It's a paradigm shift. Is that how you naturally think? Is that what you want? Is that what you're, you know, you get up in the morning saying, that's exactly, I want to charge into the burning building. That's a paradigm shift. That's what Jesus is calling us to be and to do. And therein we have to continually heed this. It takes us to the second point because this follows right up on this. Because if we don't hear the second thing, we're sunk with the first. Ever descending and ever depending. Ever descending and ever depending. We see this uh, in verse uh, 19 and 20. Pick up where we left off. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, because of your little faith, for truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Well, this is an extraordinary assurance that is given, and an amazing thing that Jesus is saying here, if we will but have ears to hear what he's actually saying. Now, the images, that's worth noting, mustard seed. At the time, it's, it's understood to be one of the, the smallest things that you could possibly lay your eyes upon, a mustard seed, a grain of a, of a mustard seed, a mountain. Oh, you think the same way of mountains as they did today, just these immense, the most, if you can think of them, what's the most stable thing on the surface of the earth? Well, you think of a mountain, and that's the way in the Jewish mind they thought of that as well. And so the, this expression, the idea to move a mountain then as now is really to do the impossible, what, how you pull all that together and what is, what is the meaning of what Jesus is saying? The context is absolutely vital. This is not a blank check. You can do whatever you want. Follow me. It's like superpowers. It's, it's a radioactive spider bite. That's not what Jesus is saying here at all, but somehow it's the way some people have read this, and then, of course, they end up being tragically disappointed when life doesn't quite work out that way. What is Jesus saying here? In the context, what has he been saying? That the kingdom has come. The kingdom, the king has come, and the kingdom is advancing. And therein, the kingdom work will be done on this earth, even now, in this age. The expression, the advance of the kingdom will take place, such that, let me give you some examples, so that Disease will be met with healing, that emptiness will be met with fullness, that broken relationships will be met with reconciliation, that poverty will be met with abundance, that injustice will be met with justice, and, and racism will be met with peace, and 
all this, the fall will be met with expressions, uh, um, echoes of shalom, of restoration. Even in this life, in every one of those arenas, even in this life, because the kingdom has come and is advancing. And as we go forward following our king, he is saying, you will see extraordinary things. I am calling you to extraordinary things. And you will see them as you serve me. That's what he's saying here. It's absolutely astonishing, absolutely astonishing that mountains of this kind could be moved. But note the condition. With this extraordinary assurance that Jesus gives, note the condition. What is it? It's faith. And as Jesus unpacks that, he explains there's two kinds of faith, ineffective and effective. Now, at the moment, the disciples are displaying which type? Ineffective. They had experienced success to some degree earlier. You go back and read the Gospels, and you see that Jesus sent them out to, to preach and to teach and to perform miracles, and they had, they had met some success, but what seems to have happened is they had begun to rely on themselves and become self-confident, self-assured. So now they come up to a need, this father, this son, at the foot of the mount, a need that they can't meet, and now they're, they're, they're crashed on their face, embarrassed, failed. What's going on? What do they come to understand? What does Jesus ha would have them to understand, us to understand, is that, well, the, a mark of ineffective faith is to look to yourself, to be self-dependent, self-reliant. Effective faith is what? To look where? To him and only to him. It doesn't have anything to do. No, no, Jesus says nothing here when it comes to effective faith about being absolutely confident and assured of a particular outcome. He says nothing about that. He says nothing about zealousness of, 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 of the faith and emotions and, and, and such. He says um, nothing even about amount of faith except that it can be perilously small. Because he says, mustard seed, moving mountain. It has nothing to do with the mount. It has to do with where and in who. And so mustard seeds can move mountains. He's telling us here that, again, a mark of following him is dependence upon him. Descending and depending, absolute depending upon him. Some of you may remember a few weeks ago when the, the mission team, we were standing, I think it was over here, and, and the elders, they were gathered around us, and they were laying hands on us and commissioning us before we went on that trip. And one of the things that I tried to communicate was, and, and we talked about this a fair bit on the trip, was to have an experienced group going now again was a blessing and a curse, you know, to, to have a pretty good idea as to what we were going to be getting ourselves into, to having had some experience to know, you know, what to expect and how to respond in certain situations and all that, that can be our great benefit. I'm not denigrating that, but it can also be a terrible thing if that's what you're relying on. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. We can get ourselves into a terrible mess relying upon ourselves. We should be so glad we should be so grateful. We should be so thankful 
on the one hand, for our experiences and our education and our training and our giftedness and all of that. Grateful and glad for it, but never relying on it. See how counterintuitive this is? How much of a paradigm shift this, this really is? Jesus, on the one hand, with this great assurance, is saying, you need not be timid. You need not be afraid. You need not set your sights so low in terms of what it means to follow me and, and the coming of the kingdom. But at the same time, while he's, he's challenging us to not be, in our, in our timidity, at the same time, he's urging us away from timidity, but at the same time holding to humility. Bold things, but on our knees. With empty hands lifted up high to the only one who can supply. And that's true wherever we are, wherever we serve, whether it's on a reservation or in your workplace whether it's on foreign soil or in the comforts of your own kitchen. We have to be leaning into him, these great assurances, but this profound, this, this condition that needing to depend, ever descending, ever depending. Again, it's the paradigm shift. Lastly, and as though you weren't hearing about a paradigm, as, as though the, the idea of, a, of the concept of paradigm shift, of, of counterintuitive, if you haven't heard that up to this point, well, here it comes. Not just ever descending and ever depending, but ever dying in terms of a, of a mark of the follower of Jesus. Verses 22 through 23. And as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly Distress. Now, this is the second time that Jesus has spoken in these ways. So that is to say, this is not the first time the disciples have heard him speak in such ways. But now there's a new element. Now he has actually introduced the element and the reality of a coming betrayal. It's, it's, it's bad enough that he's going to be killed. But compounding it, he's going to be betrayed handed over, what that means. And that can only be by someone close. So the picture is getting fuller with each time that he's speaking of this. Go back to chapter 16, verse 21. That's actually the first time we, Jesus explicitly speaks to this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And as, again, as bad as that is, as horrific as that is to the ears of his followers, it's going to be set in motion, historically speaking, by a betrayal. This is beyond their, the disciples' ability to hear. They don't have room for this. They have no categories for this. So his words then give way to their distress, their pain, their grief. And Matthew speaks to that here. Because he is taking their expectations. We've talked about this a few times before in this series. 
but he is taking the expectations that they have for the coming of the king and the kingdom and turning them on their head. How can this be who our king is? How can he be? How can the son of man be the man of sorrows? How can the Christ that we've been longing for, waiting for, the son of David, how can he be the suffering servant? How can this be? He's taking their conceptions, their ideas of who he was to be and who who he is, and turning them on their head, and not just who he is, but how the kingdom is to come. Not immediately, triumphantly, obviously, but slowly, quietly, almost in a hidden fashion. Go back and read the the parables in Matthew 13 of the the seed and the weed and the leaven. My goodness, even the parable of the soils or the sower. It's what it's all about. Jesus taking their hour desires and expectations of the way the kingdom would come and turning them and flipping them right on their head that we would understand and that we would stay the course. Well, okay, so he's really taking and messing with their expectations of the king and the kingdom, but what is he also doing? Taking and messing their expectations of what it would mean to follow the king and be a citizen of the kingdom. He has said, I am the crucified one. Follow me. What does that mean? He's already explicitly said that back in in chapter 16. By bringing it up again in 17, they can't help but hear that again, even if it's not stated explicitly. I am the crucified one. What does it mean then to follow him? A cruciform life. A dying to self in all things, in all ways. This is counterintuitive. This is part of that paradigm shift. To follow him, a mark of following him is to be, again, ever descending, ever depending, and now, oh my goodness, ever dying. Ever dying. Semper Gumby, right? Back to the Cherokee deal, okay? That's the the mantra. That's the, the... code, I guess you'd say, around the, the camp there at Norman Maney. Um, that's the name of the camp, uh, Goose Creek. What does that mean? How does that play itself out in a week at Cherokee? Well, what it means is, like, you, here's an example. You come back to the camp. You've done your pre-assigned work out in the sun. You're hot. You're tired. You're sweaty. You're smelly. You're, you're just wiped out, and you're coming back to camp a little bit early. You could take some time off, but instead you say to the camp directors, what else needs to be done? Or your pre-assigned task after dinner has been taken care of, but you realize there's another team and their pre-assigned task, and they're still struggling with theirs to get it done. You'd rather break Frisbee. But instead, you jump in and you help them. Now, you think of the gazillion of ways that can be transferred over to where we are here. A dying to self that others may live. A dying to self that others may live. That life coming through death. It's an Easter paradigm. Good Friday yielding itself to Easter Sunday. And our living in in that reality. 
every day in, in, in everything in, that, that we are about. Now, again, I'm going to give you a clarifier, just like I said a moment ago pertaining to rest. This is not saying that all of our desires are bad, not by a long shot. In fact, most of them are good, God-given. Father's, Father's Day, no few want some peace and quiet. That's fine. All of us would be all in for some happiness and health. That's fine. Those things in and of themselves, there's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with wanting them. The question is, are you governed by that? Is that a must-have sort of thing or a woe to the fool that got in my way towards the acquisition of my peace and quiet? That's not exactly a cruciform life, dying to self. But that's what Jesus calls us to in every way, in every way of our lives. And it's that paradigm shift. We need to continually heed this. Began by saying this is all very counterintuitive. Of course it is what Jesus is calling us to be and to do here, the descending, the depending, and the dying ever, ever at each point. It's counterintuitive. And to the degree that we live that way, it will also surely be countercultural. You live, we live in a uh, ever uh, descending, depending, and dying sort of fashion. That will get people's attention. You'll get yourself noticed. And it will probably, if you're in a relationship with these individuals, may generate some questions. When they ask, tell them. When they ask, tell them, but tell them straight. Tell it true. This is an exercise we did. I'm going to end with this at Cherokee. Um, it was an ongoing, we had several discussions, many discussions, on the way down, on the way back, and throughout the week. There was one key one towards the beginning of the week. And this was the, the scenario I threw out to the team. We chewed on together, and it was this. Let's say we're at the work site at the Paint Town Community Center prepping the surface that i.e. scraping paint um, for the next crew coming behind us. Let's say we're there, we're doing our thing, and somebody from there on the reservation we haven't met before comes walking over towards us and says, why are you doing this? Why are you here? Why are you doing this? And we talked about the range of possible answers, many of them very, very good. Here's a synthesis of basically what it boiled down to, what we figured was a good way to go. I'm really glad you asked. Let me tell you, because of the love of Jesus, he has been so merciful to me, to us, that we wanted a chance to share that and show that to you. Tell it straight. Tell it true. Might open up some more conversation because that sounds really weird. But it's straight and true. When they ask, as we're living, ever descending, ever depending, ever denying, and that is not just counterintuitive but countercultural, when they ask, tell them. Tell them. Let's pray. Lord, you call us to be salt. You call us to be light. You call us to be a city on a hill. 
You warn us as to what would happen if the salt loses its saltiness. You chasten us over the possibility that our light indeed could be hidden under a bushel. That would be to miss the point, um, to fail in our purpose. We ask that you'd help us to see and think and live anew, to live in accordance to the paradigm shift that you've called us to. We ask that you'd prepare us even for this week the specific, particular challenges in front of us this week as we're feeling those tectonic plates in our own hearts shift. We pray that you'd help us to be open with you, the struggle that this is, open with one another, the struggle that this is, and help us to be encouragers of one another in these things. But oh, please, where you've just begun this work, keep it going. Where you've been doing it a long time in our lives, oh, please, keep it going. May it mature and grow. May may we mature and grow in these things, in this paradigm shift style of life that you've called us to. We pray in your name. Amen.